Real life superpowers. So let's say a founder is pitching a VC. Usually a founder would just kind of load up his PowerPoint, right? Connect to the screen and just boom, go pitch away. 10, 15, 20 minutes even. Kind of a monologue. And I think that's the wrong way. Because you finish your pitch, you know, the investor sits there, kind of polite, maybe asks a few questions. But he'll say, all right, this, I'll get, let me think about it. Or I'll talk to my partner. Or you know, I'll, we'll let you know. And then you either get a yes or a no. Does that tell you which part you can optimize? Does that help you understand where the problem is? Not usually. Hey all. As we enter the new frontier in artificial intelligence with generative AI leading the way, this conversation can be super relevant for entrepreneurs who are trying to navigate this new landscape and figure out what skills it makes the most sense to hone in order to stand out. The conversation is with Tomer Dean, He's the co-founder and CEO of Audio Labs, a startup that builds AI technology to convert podcasts into short-form video clips. He's a tech entrepreneur, full-stack developer, guest writer at TechCrunch, host of two podcasts, the list goes on. Growing up in Silicon Valley, he started his digital career at the age of 15. He taught himself how to code his first website, which he later sold at 16 for 10 grand. He hasn't stopped coding and building since. During the years, he's built many side projects and companies in SaaS, media, consumer, and e-commerce. Some were bootstrapped, some VC-backed, some sold. Here's our conversation. Real life. Superpowers. So, Tomer, welcome to Real Life Superpowers. Hey, Tomer. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. I got to say, like, uh, right from the start, your uh, character sort of stands out. Like, uh, this morning at 9.10, you texted me when we have this interview at 9.45 to ask if we're meeting face-to-face or via Zoom. Uh, and it just, like, reflects so much about your agility, I think. So, uh, thank you for uh, just jumping on and uh, being fun. Next time, it needs to be face-to-face then. <laughs> Gladly. Fair enough. Although you have like a perfect setting in the background, like there's this whiteboard where you look like part of the funnel of the user journey or whatever kind of business model you're building there. And uh, I have to say that I'm, I'm really envious about your writing. Is that you writing? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's me. And there might be a little remark my girlfriend added, but yeah. The triangle on the left side is just ridiculously perfect. <laughs> I appreciate that. It's actually a funny story about this office. Uh, I moved into a new apartment six months ago, and I had this whole perfect you know, Zoom setting planned out in my head. And then because of the wall, the wall material, I had to place the shelves and everything on the other side. So actually, this side is the ugly side. The side that you don't see is the really nice one, which unfortunately didn't doesn't fit into the zoom or into the recording background so i still need to make a few changes but uh it's like you have a guest and you're like saying holy this is like this is a great you have a great zoom in front of you right so it's like it's like yeah we're the guests so think about us on the other side <laughs> yeah thanks for being here today and in any case this is audio only so uh, we're covered yep fair enough 
So I got to share, like looking at audio labs, I, I am enjoying AI so much these days that I'm probably not the only one. I think like the, all of uh, society in a sense, this feels like days of a digital playground. Like I keep adding all these tools and enjoying AI uh, and I'm seeing it truly starting a revolution. I'm, I'm curious, do you feel the impact of chat GPT getting rolled out? Do you, do you get more people reaching out to you uh, for what you do? Definitely. In the past several weeks, several months, there's no denying the momentum that AI is getting. A lot of this momentum is falling onto the companies that are currently working on AI. Um, so we're seeing inbounds from users, mainly from different directories of AI tools that some people uh, curate, and also different partners. Um, investors are reaching out more inbound um, I think, and I, I assume other companies in the generative AI space are seeing similar. Yeah, it's an interesting time to be in this world. And it's not every day that a new technology comes out that can actually 10x an existing process. And do you think it's good days for entrepreneurs to actually start building something in AI? Do you think like, where are we in a, in a curve of adopting technology and the ability to leverage it as you see it? I think it's the perfect time to start an AI company just because of the sheer amount of frameworks and models that you can openly connect with. On the other hand, there is a cash crunch in the venture capital world. It's not the best time for and raising around easily. So there's two trade-offs. If you ask uh, investors, they'd likely say it's the perfect time to start. But um, I know it's a trade-off. I think it's a good time to start working, validating a new product, maybe even bootstrapping a bit, not assuming cash will be so easy to come by. And I think in the AI space, there's a lot of questions around um, how defensible is this idea. Is it commoditized? If every competitor can access the same frameworks and the same tech as you, where is the differentiation? Is it go to market? You're actually saying something like about the 10X, right? So you're saying it's great. Like, you know, you're right. It's like not every day you get something so exponentially, you know, higher than anything you've ever seen, you know, getting to AI, getting to fast conclusions, even having like, kind of an emotional result uh, of feedback, okay, of what you're asking. And then you're in AI. Like, how intimidating is that, okay, when you have to attend X and then they're like, yeah, you know, I saw what you have and, uh, you know, ChatGPT is, is doing that, whatever. You know what I mean? It's also really intimidating. It's inspirational, but isn't it intimidating as an entrepreneur? So we were lucky enough that we're still early stage enough that we're able to lean into these new technologies and not compete. It's not like we were working for five years on some model which, you know, is subpar to GPT-3. We, we're now using GPT-3 as a way to um, optimize our results, and we're doing a hyper-trained model on top of GPT-3. So it's actually coming and giving us a... a um, a push and I know but uh, but there you're definitely right there are companies that have been developing these technologies for years and investing millions if not tens of millions and in one day their R&D and their tech 
might be obsolete. It might be worse and more expensive. I'm using some uh, writing tools, and I feel like ever since ChatGPT was rolled out, I'm not really going back to them because I don't need to. So I'm thinking that's probably happening across the board. Um, and it's interesting, like, when did you start your venture? So the story of Audio Labs, we started last year. And we started by, you know, jumping into the world of audio and podcasting. And we t it took around a year to validate a few different directions. We were, you know, we, every few months we would launch a new uh, product and validate it with the user segment. So we did a lot of um, early validations. We, we, we kind of did a few products that we threw away. We saw that they weren't viable until we reached this new, this product that we have today, which is the value proposition is helping podcasters get more growth by using and leveraging these new video apps like YouTube Shorts and TikTok. Right. And then like, this is not your first rodeo. So were you always with the, going with this approach of an MVP? Or was that something that was learned through trial and error that you have to not have uh, assumptions and develop a full product, but, you know, go down a more careful path of actually, you know, putting your ear on the ground? So it wasn't always like this. In the, past, in the last few years, I've definitely been more careful in the way I approach new product validation. So I, I, I'll, I'd love to share a story. And this is a story going 10 years back. Me and my two co-founders that we're still working together today, we were all studying together our computer science at the IDC. And we had an idea for a startup. It was a marketplace to connect dog owners with dog services. And we had an idea and we were three developers. And what do three developers do when they have an idea? They build. So we sat down for, I think it was six months, maybe nine months even. And we developed a full platform. We had the whole specs and user journeys, user flows, whatever you want. Payments, transaction, messaging. We just built like a whole Airbnb type of website. And then we launched. And this was before talking to any customers. And then nobody came. So actually, I'm joking. Um, that, that, that's the more dramatic version. So that the website did succeed. People came. But we saw that they used only 10% of the features we built. So you could look at it as we wasted 90% of the time building pointless features that nobody's ever going to use. What were the features they wanted to use? They wanted to find someone that can take care of their dog, talk to them, and see their reviews. That's pretty much it. That's actually really interesting. There's businesses like people who do like monetization on display, but you say to yourself, like, I'm not the person who clicks on a banner, right? Or there's, there's so much um, entrepreneurs going up with products that you know, either is illogical because either culture or whatever, you know, you're not the user itself. And when you talk, don't talk to the people, you're actually wasting a lot of time. And the worst thing is also pitching to someone and then they say, I want this feature. And then you go develop that feature because that one, one person subjectively said he needs it. So like, like that's more than a developer. It's sort of like a, a entrepreneurial problem. Like how do you feel you progressed from there till now of doing, you know, just efficiency? So at the end of this, I felt, we felt pretty stupid. 
we felt that we could have done the same feature set in a month of R&D instead of eight months. And it gave us a, a long lag at the market. You know, we could have been at a completely different point if we had worked differently. And we vowed on that day, never again are we going to go into R&D before talking to customers. Today, I'm actually a bit more extreme. Today, I don't want to start R&D before we have a paying customer. Um, not even like an LOI. I prefer if the cash is in the bank. Because that shows how urgent a problem really is. And also um, waiting lists if it's a more B2C type. So, you know, we don't, we don't start until we have a thousand users that signed up on a waiting list. Wow, that seems even aggressive. Like I'm thinking I could love the notion of a solution to, some, to a problem of mine, but I have to deeply trust somebody who is telling me that they're going to be developing it and that, you know, I'm going to be also happy enough with how, the way they're doing it so that I would, you know, pay in advance. I'm wondering, I mean, is that going well for you? Do you get rejections that are based on, you know, I'm, I will pay, but if, you know, how do people respond to this? So our approach is we, we prefer to sell and then build. And the scope of what we're selling is limited to things we can develop and actually deliver within usually a month time frame. So if we're saying, if we have a landing page that says you can buy this product right now for $100, it's going to do X, Y, and Z, we're going to make sure you're going to get it within a month at, at, at maximum. So we don't oversell beyond what we know we can do in the near future. That's our way to limit the, the negative impacts of this. But it's also, you know, to, it's mostly a selfish decision to be honest, right? It's protecting ourselves against downside of wasting time. But that's amazing. I mean, if it works, then, you know, you, you figured it out. I'm just thinking, how is it possible to sell something and make it sustainable and, you know, retain the customers? Because unless you're not selling something that also requires a user experience, and I'm trying to think of something that doesn't require any user experience, and I'm not able to. So you have to be able to truly deliver. Uh, and then also, I'm thinking pricing-wise, like how much are people willing to pay for something without truly knowing what they're getting? Or do you, for example provide a demo or, or, or a very clear expectation of what they will get. Yeah. So this goes back to um, having very good messaging, having good um, value proposition, explain the benefits, and showing the pricing page before having them add to the waiting list. So it doesn't, it doesn't always mean you have to charge the customer's credit card. It means that they have to understand this will be a paid product that this thing I'm signing up for will cost me money, but it's solving a problem that's so important that I'm going to sign up anyways. So it's important for us to not try this to quickly grab the user's email by doing, you know, the little magic pop-ups and stuff, but actually saying, you know, this is the problem. Here's how much it's going to cost. This is how the product's going to work from a kind of overview flow. And if you want it, sign up. And if nobody signs up, that tells us a lot. And I'm thinking probably investors love this approach. It's very, uh, it's very bulletproof as you're trying to create. And then, but do you even need investors when you take that approach? Because 
clearly you can fund and grow through what you're selling. This depends on the company, depends on the stage. If you can sustain yourself from these early revenues, that's amazing. It's not always the case that um, it's enough to sustain yourself. On the investor side, I would say, yes, it is a positive signal. I do tend to see that it might be a bit overused the past year or two. Many companies are saying they have waiting lists of hundreds of users. It's kind of something that you know they've been hearing a lot. Including paying customers and how much they're willing to pay because there's a huge difference between, yeah, I, I want this and yeah, I want this and I'm willing to commit to pay. That's the thing. So when you're talking with an investor and you're, you want to show off your traction and you say, we have a thousand users on the waiting list, that investor doesn't know what these users passed on the journey. And, you know, he's hearing this sentence from many founders. Some founders maybe didn't put a pricing page. So the barrier of their waiting list is much lower. So it's hard to compare, but I use it for a tool for us internally. If we don't have that, you know, I'm not convinced we should do this. Way before explaining and convincing an investor that this, this is the future, it's first important to convince ourselves. Because if we're not convinced, nobody's going to be convinced by us anyways. Like, it'll sound like bullshit. And if we are convinced, it just makes everything much easier. That's a good point because you're, you're actually going for it. It's, I find that with a lot of entrepreneurs, you're looking at the truth in the face, seeing like you're not getting the rejection. Some people are like, you know, they're scared of getting the rejection. But on the other sense, it could be like, there's always the kind of decision of trying to think, am I going to sell an investor on a dream or on a reality? Because there's something about that, that maybe you do sell it, but then you get feedback. And there's, you know, for sure there's going to be problems, you know, into uh, uh, putting it inside the systems, teaching people how to work with it, implementing it in, you know, an organization, uh, things that don't work as well, you know, and then something becomes real and then they can actually say, okay, this is how much revenue you have. Here's the multiplier, you know, like all the, the ideas. So isn't there a disadvantage on the investor side? So waiting lists can have a two, I think it's a two kind of um, a double-edged sword. On the one hand, you're proving, you're de-risking demand. You're de-risking this team's ability to reach the target consumer, explain the value proposition, get them in the funnel. You know, many f entrepreneurs, they don't do that part well. So I, I do think it's an advantage. It's a clear advantage. How much of an advantage is it? over, let's say, another company that just has 10 paying customers and not a 1,000 people on the waiting list, hard to tell. Um, so I, I, I'm not using it today as kind of my, you know, this is what I'm selling. I prefer to have paid customers. But at the beginning, if that's all you have, then of course, showcase that. I have many friends that also raised huge rounds. Um, well, this was back in 2021, so the world was different. But they raised a lot of a huge amount of money on the premise of these waiting lists. A good example is uh, my friend Yoav Wilner at Walnut. I think they raised the first four or five million dollars just on a waiting list of a hundred customers that were interested in this product. I do have to say it's a B2B audience, which means a hundred is different than a hundred consumers. Um, but yeah, that was very, very impressive back in the day. I think today is slightly less. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, 
Yeah, it's, uh, but it's a great tactic to consider, I would say. What number of venture is this for you about? It's hard to count. Um, I started pretty early getting into different businesses. I would say in terms of uh, venture-backed, I think this is the third one. If you count all the bootstraps and different projects, probably 20, quite a few. Did you ever work uh, in, in a company and not be the founder of it? Yeah, so this actually goes back to, um, you know, we're talking about superpowers here, right? And there's one, I don't think that I'm very good at so many things, but I think there's one or two things which I seem naturally better than others. And I think it's a, it helped me a lot in this journey. And I think uh, many people can leverage this as well. And this goes back to my, to my, to my past. So I worked several years um, in the army and after in the prime minister's office. And I got to see how it is to work in a large government office. And one of the things I was good at there was helping them validate new products. Um, you know, people always like to say, you know, entrepreneur and enterprises and stuff, but it was actually that. So my, one of my jobs was to take new concepts, um, create a POC or mock-up, explain how we can help someone in the organization, go pitch it to all of the executives and the C-levels, and then either they decide to build it and it goes down an R&D path or nothing happens and just... It's shelved. And that really, I really love that part of my role because it's kind of like being a startup founder. Your idea is to validate a direction and find a customer that it helps showcase how this can work to the executive teams, which is similar to investors, right? Get the resources. And that helped me, you know, and, I, and we did tens of products and uh, every few months, it was a different product, kind of like uh, McKinsey or something. So that gave me a lot of experience in uh, pitching and you know, creating demos and explaining value propositions, which um, strongly affected my experience as a founder. We're excited to be collaborating with the Israeli website CTEC, owned by Kalkalist, Israel's leading business newspaper. CTEC is the gateway of the Israeli high-tech to the tech world and vice versa. If you're not already a regular reader, we strongly recommend that you check out kalkalistech.com, C-A-L-C-A-L-I-S-T-E-C-H.com to stay up to date on all high-impact stories from the Israeli tech scene. Tomo, that's a really serious superpower, by the way, okay, as, as a skill set. Like, let me understand something about the process. One, how do you know, like, when someone pitches the idea to you before going into that, Okay, what is like a, a rule of thumb of a no go no? Okay. Two, how much time do you give it to, you know, be kind of real enough till you pitch it to someone? And what are the feedbacks that you come back and don't even go through with the second meeting? And how long is the process itself for you to make like uh, the product? Because if you're t we're talking about like a big, you know, like this is also government, also large, right? So the, any process, even buying pencils should take time. Uh, and it's always like, you know, the most annoying. You're like, you know, if there's any kind of process of uh, agility, this would be the place that lacks the most. So tell me about that process. You're right. These places don't like agility. And it's also the reason why it didn't really work out in the end. I was, it wasn't fulfilling enough 
too many projects were shelved that had so much merit and it was so obvious that this was the right thing to do but it's hard to move things in these places and the speed is nothing like uh, the speed and urgency of the world of startups and that's why i left uh, but yeah it did give me kind of a experience on the other spectrum right you have startups on one end you have corporates in the middle and then you have governments on the far end so i think my goal was first of all to find a problem which means i had to talk with an internal customer not the executives they're not the customer they're the sign-offs so find someone that has a problem an urgent problem where it's very easy to validate and quantify the value that they have no solution or a shitty solution today the best is if they're doing if they're making something with excel do it they're doing something really weird with excel that's the ideal situation um I, there were a lot of these examples that they just had this legacy excel and nobody was allowed to touch as a you know fear would break with like internal loops and all this shit and we would quickly make a poc um, so I think another thing I'm I'm pretty good at is, you know, also because my experience is I'm a software developer by trade, but I did a lot of product management work. So I got pretty good at making mockups that didn't work or one page web apps that look and feel like they work, but nothing works in the back end. It's just front end stuff. You click here, something pops up nice, but nothing actually happens, but it, it looks like everything lo works well. So it makes for great presentations. Kind of like a Figma back in the day, but you had to actually program it. And so, so that, that, those are the big things, finding a big product, finding a, a target audience that, ha that needs this, showcasing some kind of early demo, and then, then going for the pitch. That was the process. And you know, we, we, we could do these in a few weeks and then wait a few weeks just for that one meeting to, to pitch it. And yeah, so that was the process. Um, I learned a lot and it got me to better understand how to pitch things, how to see where, you know, their eyes light up. I think that's a big thing. Like which parts of this pitch make people excited? And it's the same thing that's important today to any founder that's fundraising. What sentences can you say that you just see the pupils of the other person light up or, you know, expand? This is so great because I'm truly hearing a practical framework here that I think people listening can actually apply either at a stage where they're looking for an idea or at a later stage where they're trying to figure out exactly where, how to take it from there and even at a stage of understanding how to pitch. So what I, I think this comes down to is, as you're saying, find a problem. And this can be a problem that you're experiencing, which based on what I'm seeing, the people that solve a problem that they're experiencing are typically the ones who succeed the most, um, if, I, if, if I'm to generalize here. So find a problem and then find other people who are actually suffering from that problem and don't skip this step. I think uh, one of the key uh, themes that, are, that I'm hearing in this conversation is how important that is and I can't agree more. So find other people with that problem and obviously, especially if you don't suffer from, your, from it yourself and hear them out. And, and maybe I'll add here that when you hear them out, don't, don't put words in their mouth, you know, try to really understand exactly what they're experiencing. And then after that, 
try to now do a little MVP. And I think in these days of generative AI, it's simpler than ever because you can probably get some form of script through ChatGPT and even leverage, not even, but leverage other tools. You can use uh, free tools even to create a landing page for this. You can do a lot. And if you don't have that understanding, then you can go to uh, marketplaces like a freelancer or Upwork and see from there how you can get somebody to develop something at a very low budget. And then after that, it's a matter of pitching. And I would love to hear your inputs on that because, you know, there's stuff to consider here. There's who you're pitching. Not everybody is a relevant investor. So maybe there's research to be done here. And then the how, you know, you, you gave a very, very important bottom line of see their eyes lit. But how do you create the bridge from uh, MVP to a pitch that makes people's eyes lit? And these clearly have to be specific people. Yeah. So that part is, more, is a bit trickier. You know, so everything here in theory sounds easy. So I completely agree with what you're saying. Today, it's much easier to get something launched with no code or hiring a developer to, you know, combine a few different tools. There's so many options today. I remember back in the day, you had to you know, develop everything. Everything was a project. Uh, regarding investors and figuring out which parts of the pitch make them light up, it's not always so easy. It takes a, a while until you understand which parts. You know, in the end, there are kind of the common things. Investors, you know, it's pretty, there is a checklist of what investors love to hear. Okay, well, tell us a bit about that. So Yeah, so there's kind of the, the, the standard, right? What investors want, they want to make money. Why do they want to make money? They want to succeed because they raised 100 million and they have to return 300 million in 10 years. And that's really, really hard. And only 5% of funds actually return 3x or more. Only 5% of funds actually um, deliver the overpromise that they gave their investors. So investors are very desperate to succeed, and it's a very uh, hard job. And that's why you know, they have to be very strategic about how they input signals. And sometimes just you know one word or one wrong sentence can kind of uh, de-excite them. And the things they're looking for, it makes sense that this is why they're looking for it. They need a big outcome, which means a billion-dollar company. I'm assuming this is a standard fund and not a micro fund, which means they want to see a scalable solution, high margins, a large market, ideally growing. They want to see that you have a core um, tech, a tech-based uh, moat, you know, any kind of moat that can make sure that you're not going to be swallowed up by competitors. And the team is competent and the team is the one that can succeed. There's five big questions in any investor's mind when they have a call, either subconsciously or consciously, that they need the answers to these five questions to be able to send a term sheet. Maybe even four yeses would give you a good signal, but five is the, is the outcome. So that's kind of the framework which I, I use, and it's a framework that was given to me by a good mentor of mine, Ophel Vilensky. He's the founder of Hola. He told me like a few years ago, your deck needs six slides. There's six questions an investor needs to say yes to, and you'll get his money. And that's kind of been my, uh, my north star when I, when I pitch. And the goal is to understand when you're pitching what problem which of these five or six questions does the investor not agree with you? And I think this is the most important part. So let's say a founder is pitching a VC. Usually a founder would just kind of load up his PowerPoint, right? 
connect to the screen, you just boom, go pitch away 10, 15, 20 minutes even. Kind of a monologue. And I think that's the wrong way because you finish your pitch, you know, the investor sits there kind of polite, maybe asks a few questions, but he'll say, all right, this, I'll, let me think about it or I'll talk to my partner or you know, I'll, we'll let you know. And then you either get a yes or a no. Does that tell you which part you can optimize? Does that help you understand where the problem is? Not usually. So a better way is to treat this as a conversation. So there is that five or six elements to the conversation. And you can also stop the pitch after the first part and say, do you agree with me that this is a strong pain point? Do you agree with me that this market is worth is a big market? Do you agree that our go-to market strategy is the one that could succeed? And don't expect a yes on every answer. And when he doesn't agree on something, then you can discuss it. All right, let's take 10 minutes of the meeting. Let's discuss this specific point. If I couldn't convince you after 10 minutes, then there's no reason to continue the pitch. Look, why should I go into the team and everything and the traction if you don't believe and you don't agree on the the problem statement, right? Yeah, but also you need to really listen and 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 ask yourself if maybe you heard some uh, painful feedback that is that makes sense. Perhaps, perhaps, and uh, many of these conversations, you know, many investors are very smart people. They can definitely um, signal an area which could be problematic. There's a lot of merit to listening and actually um, digesting the feedback. I'm not saying blindly, but you know, if you agree with it, definitely. But I think that helps you kind of um, understand which parts you, you can improve. And I'll give you a very real example from a few weeks ago. I did a few rounds of uh, talks with investors uh, for our upcoming seed round. And I, I had this framework of the five, six questions. And after the five meetings, I did like a little like a little table, a design table, and I had like a check mark on all of the um, investors. And I saw what were the common feedback, the common reactions from all five. And all five said pretty much the same thing. One of the columns, one of my five big things, they didn't see enough. And that's where I focused my efforts. And I think that's a really interesting framework. I love how you're very open to feedback and you're willing to adjust based on it. Like you're not clinging to anything. Is that something that, uh, that you've learned over the years or is that sort of second nature? I wouldn't say I'm perfect at it. Um, I also suffer from the same founders. I know I, it's my baby. I also get offended when someone declines. It's never, it's never fun. Uh, so I wouldn't say I'm Iron Man or anything in terms of feedback. I think it's much easier when you understand the, po- the the position your investor is in. It's not like his job is easy. It's really hard. Like I wouldn't want to be an investor. I think it's hard to succeed as an investor than as a founder. So this is the first thing. Everybody says it's a really easy job to be an investor. You invest, you hedge, you have a portfolio. What's hard about that job? And how do you know? It's hard because most investors fail. What does that mean? That means... They, didn't, they don't return enough to their investors. They won't get a, a second fund and they'll just kind of phase out and die. It, it might still say investor on their LinkedIn profile, but they won't be active and LPs won't give them more money because they didn't prove themselves the first time. I think it's, it's I understand why many people go into investing. Um, 
if you raise a big enough fund, you'll have a great salary. If you succeed in choosing the right startups and succeeding, then you'll become, you can make tens of millions of dollars, if not more. So your upside is very high. Your downside is relatively low. So let's say, you know, you're opening a fund when you're 45, 50 years old, and it's a 10-year fund. So it'll take 10 years for your LPs to figure out that you succeeded or failed. If you succeed in 10 years, perfect. You make your millions, you retire early, you keep on doing it. If you fail, you'll still make good money just from your base salary. You won't make the all the carry. And then you can kind of retire just a bit quieter. It's a hard job to succeed. So choosing the right startups, you know, humans are notoriously bad at predicting the future. You know, the best investors in the world declined the best companies in the world. What does that tell you? Nobody knows what's going to happen. And we have very bad predictability rates of future success. And a lot of investing today is intuition and gut. And that's, it's a good thing and a bad thing. So an investor can easily just say, just not invest and not be excited because the founder didn't pitch it well enough. So is the founder, is the ability of the founder pitching, is that the most important thing of a startup? Probably not. There are many successful introvert founders that they don't speak properly. They don't communicate like Steve Jobs, and they still have billion-dollar companies. So there are many factors, and, you know, human biases has a lot of issues. I understand why there's a certain type of founder that has it a bit easier than others. And VCs look at the past in order to make future predictions. So cyber worked out well in the past three years. We're going to keep on doing cyber. And the track record of the, of the entrepreneur. Exactly. The entrepreneur is looking forward. It's like, okay, what will be the biggest changes in the world in the next three years? And investors, it's not like the investors aren't looking forward as well. They are, but they know that they have the dollar signs of the past few deals in their head. No, I was saying that the, the past of the entrepreneur. So if it's a, an entrepreneur with a track record of success, that's going to raise the chances of investing in, in that person. Oh, of course, of course. Um, but that also makes sense. I don't think that's an issue. That's, that's a good signal. But of course, it's not the only signal you should look at. There are many, you know, Mark Zuckerberg succeeded on his first time. He wasn't a second time founder. Um, so I think there, there's, there's logic in both ways. But, you know, I was even offered a, a year ago to come in as kind of a open a fund, a, a small fund of, let's say, half a million dollars to a million dollars and invest in 10 companies. And I actually thought about it, like, what are the chances I'll succeed? And I wasn't confident I would succeed. I figured out there was a big chance I'm going to lose all of this money. Because again, you're very grounded and looking at the, and very practical. So you're probably right because, you know, that's, the, that's just the numbers speaking. But as you said, the upside here would clearly be very high. Because you need a, a thesis that you agree with and it's easy for you to make decisions and you don't get into FOMO. Because I'm someone that, get, get, that gets really excited. Like if I sit with a founder and he's telling me about his, his vision, I can get completely sucked in and start helping him and intros and all these different things. So it's very hard for me to kind of separate the, the cold logic of this is going to be a big outcome and this is personally exciting. I don't believe you. I, I know you mean what you're saying, but if you listen to yourself, 
then you have clear KPIs in order to understand if something is promising or not. And it's also something that you're saying is your superpower and you did it at the government. So maybe when you buy into something, then you fully buy into it, but it will have to check a lot of the boxes. So it's gonna, you're going to get excited because it's a huge problem and you're hearing that people want to solve it and you saw something that's clear indication. And then, okay, you may be wrong, but that's the, that's the game. But I do believe that uh, based on the way you think, you think you would probably approach things very carefully and if you are excited then that would probably make something interesting i can give you an example of where i fucked up so um i had an opportunity to invest in a company as a small angel investor a year ago this was a friend i completely trusted i think he's brilliant they had interesting traction but there were some you know questions is this big enough i don't know and he, he, ta- he offered me to invest when he was still talking with angel investors. And, you know, like any investor, I made the mistake of saying, you know what, I'll wait a bit. Let's see what happens. Let's see who else comes in. All right. The dumbest thing you can say, in my opinion, I think that was a mistake. I just wanted to push the can down the road and delay the decision. And then he asked me again after a month. After some people came in, I still I kind of said the same thing. I didn't really buy in yet. And then quickly it was over. The company finished the round. And today they're doing amazingly well. Um, I won't say the name, but they recently got funded by Aleph as well. So it's, it's, it's now a superstar. And I was there in the fucking beginning. And I could have so easily got in. Did all the boxes check for you? Were you sure about the no, all five? No, they didn't. I don't know. It just sounds like, okay, you're going to make mistakes, but if you don't have a formula, that's exactly where you can get carried away. So that sounds like something that's protecting you. Like my humble opinion is that even though that didn't prove itself in this time, um, you should probably stick to what you understand and believe in. But that's the thing. Like, I did believe in this guy. But, but does that trump everything? Like you have your, uh, your, your rules of when it's a yes and when it's a no. Yeah, but my rules suck, apparently, if I missed out on the first opportunity I had. I disagree. What do you think, Ronan? Okay, so first of all, I think you're competitive, which is great. And, and, and if you didn't think you suck, then you can't get better. The second thing is uh, uh, the, the human factor. As you said, we're bad at predictions, but the human factor is also an X factor. So when it goes opposite, it's opposite. So what you're saying is, and I'm sure a lot of, you look like a person that, you know, relationship-wise, a lot of investors probably are reoccurring. That's a guess, but or some of them, at least the base ones. You're also pretty loyal as a character, in my opinion. So what what I'm saying is the X factor can go both ways. It's also the reason why not. But the investor, I think, has the hardest job in one sense that he doesn't do work. So he's never appreciative. But they do have a knack, the good ones, of having an X factor and not having the knowledge and the um, experience of making MVPs and mock-ups, uh, but having the experience of how to have a due diligence, you'd call it gut feeling, but taking the human factor and turning it into ROI. So, you know, they factor in how three different people have three different jobs and how they communicate and how much they want that and how much, you know, are they marathon or sprinters, okay? How do they succeed? Do they solve problems as optimists or not? And the due diligence of that is really hard to factor in as math. 
So it's more, it's like there is a checklist, but it's more like, you know, it's, it's more like, um, sort of a genius way of, of looking at it as a method. I'm so, no, so like, I think as a job, the skill set of doing it, I think you're amazing at doing due diligence and being efficient about it. Right. And I think you're just, you know, the X factor thing is you believe in human beings. So you just annoyed that you knew that guy was talented. Yes. I'm annoyed because I let the framework, um, let me go into saying no. Um, what I learned from this, and I'm not sure this is the best decision, but what I learned from it is if I would, uh, let's say, open a fund in the future, let's say a million dollars, 10 companies, right? I want a very simple way to, uh, to determine is it a yes or no. I want to have to start hearing all these pitches of ideas I'll never understand because I'm not the target audience or technologies I won't understand. I want a very simple way. And, and the only thing I can come up with was, do I trust this person enough? that I'm going to blindly follow him. And that, that's my best thesis at this moment. So if I would do it today, I would take the 1 million and I would f wait until I had 10 um, CEOs I trust that are fundraising and I can get in and I would pretty much blindly give it to them. I, I, I'm not even sure I want to hear the pitch because the second I hear the pitch, it might be over, right? The biases of all these industries and market sizes and all this other stuff could come in the way. If I trust that this person will actually wants to build a huge company and is capable and is smart enough, he'll figure everything else out. Genius, but quantify that. I can't quantify that. I'm not sure if it's a genius strategy. It could be a dumb strategy. No, but if you quantify it, quantify trust, you see, that's the, that's the thing. Yeah, it'll be, interesting. it'll be interesting to see how this strategy would work as a fund. Like if you just don't even pitch me. I don't want to hear the pitch. Um, cause I don't care what industry, I don't care anything except for the person, for the team. You're, you're speaking to somebody sitting next to me who has that strategy. It's, it's a, the quantify trust. The problem with trust is it's not, um, it's a, it's subjective, right? Because you have trust between people because you're also competing with other people. So it, it's a hard one. And by the way, I, you're, you're right. I don't know how to scale that, right? You, you know, it's like... Yonan has a website up somewhere that says, um, I invest in uh, people, not in spreadsheets and pitches. Don't even send them to me. Now, the problem is I don't know enough people. <laughs> it's not scalable because trust is not scalable. It's dependent on your first degree connections. And if you have enough first degree connections to fill funds, great. If you don't, maybe you're not the right person to do this fund. Correct. Correct. So, uh, Thomas, I have a question for you. What would you say, I understand the skill set of uh, kind of, uh, like, you know, checking MVPs, but what would you say your superpower is? Natural curiosity. Naturally being curious around the things around you is a superpower. I think if you don't have this, you're going to miss out on a lot of things. I think it's hard to hack. For example, a lot of the big improvements I made in my companies was figuring out something about my target market. Just figuring out the right word to use, the right, something with the messaging. It's not always easy. You have to ask. You have to ask them why and go on conversations and really want to know what's going on in their heads. And I think if someone that isn't naturally curious, they won't do all of those things. They'll keep it a bit superficial and you won't get into the weeds. So I think that's one of my, uh, I would say my, my biggest strengths. An optimizer. Yeah, I think the fact that I'm also a developer and I can actually implement these things, that is a multiplier. Another thing that I've been working hard 
I don't think it's a natural thing, but I think you can learn it is cold emailing and communicating well versus e on text. Because basically every person in the world is, a, is accessible on email, especially executives. Every CEO pretty much reads every email in their inbox. They won't necessarily respond to everything, but they're going to read it, at least the subject line. So if you get good at cold emailing, you, you're unstoppable. Like you may not get 100% success rate, but let's say you get 20% success rate on your cold emails and it slowly climbs to 50%. If you do, you know, every day, if you send five good cold emails to people that can change your whole company, if they, if they say yes, then you're eventually going to get lucky and leverage that. So I think that's something I'm very bullish on, but you know, it's a process. I've been studying it for five years and I think now I'm okay at it. And what would be your kryptonite? That's a great question. My kryptonite would be processes that are very manual. Um, I hate doing things with, you know, handling our finances and making sure all the government's pension funds and everything all around the finance and operations. When I have like a, a regular thing, regular thing I need to do, I very often kind of prefer to do other things. So that's something I always look to delegate out, out outwards. If you can't optimize, it's annoying. Yes. If it's um, that process, yeah. you can't get it better. It's, it's that cap. Cool. Tomer, before we let you go, I just want uh, if you can give us one pro tip for cold emailing. Always what's in it for me. Everyone is selfish today. Everyone is selfish on, at their, with their time. Make sure your email talks about them. And a very easy way to understand if your email is good at what's in it for me is to print it out or mark it with a color. Everything that says I or we goes with, with a red color. Anything that says you or your goes in green. Color your whole email. And then you'll see if the email is green, it's probably good. If you're talking about yourself, our company does this. I can help you with this. We want 15 minutes of your, of, to talk to you. It's, a lot of it's about me. And people don't care about you. They only care about themselves. So you make the email about them and their problems, you're going to have a much easier time. Brilliant and sounds like an overall great strategy for building a startup based on. It's going to be a great title for the episode. Nobody cares about you. I agree. I mean, ouch, but yeah. That's kind of, you're an optimistic, nice guy. I don't know if you want to be that dark, but it was, but it was a really good tip. I like that. Nice. Yeah. All right, folks, we'll leave with you with that. Nobody cares about you, um, but we care a bit, so... At least there's that. Thank you so much, Tomer. Thanks, guys, for having me. It was great. Thank you. That's all for today's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please consider subscribing to our podcast so you never miss an episode. Also, if you have a moment, we would really appreciate it if you could rate and review our podcast on the platform you're listening to. This will help others find our show. And as always, if you know anyone who you think would enjoy our podcast, please share it with them. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back as usual on the first of the month. Real life. Superpowers. Up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. Gentlemen, we can rebuild him. We have the technology. It's alive. Real life. Superpowers.